This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is December 15th, 2022. I'm Scott Galenaboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we're going to talk about things getting frozen, ICBC, MLA pays. It may even snow in the next week. It's our last show before Christmas and the holidays. So lots to cover. Uh, and then the news is just going to stop conveniently for us. Hopefully so, yeah. The... Legislature here in BC, Parliament in Ottawa have both risen for the last time this year. So, yeah, we're probably going to be entering a slow news period, thankfully. Even the Alberta legislature I saw was supposed to go until December 22nd, as Daniel Smith had a lot she wanted to do. But they just rushed the Sovereignty Act through today and rose for the break. So everyone's having an early holidays, I guess. Uh but yeah, we'll come back on January 5th. We'll do our 2022 retrospective episode. We'll go back through our past predictions. We'll make some more as we tend to do. We already looked and we're about average. Some some spot on easy ones, some wild misses on what turned out to be easy ones. But yeah, help us bring the podcast back in the new year. Patreon.com slash Politicoast. We'll still be active in the Slack, of course. So let's start here in BC. ICBC rates are being frozen for the next two years. A somewhat interesting announcement this week in the way it was done as ICBC has formally asked with David Eby, the new premier standing there with them for the BC Utilities Commission to freeze rates for the next two years. The BCUC can decide to not freeze the rates, but then cabinet can overrule them. So the fact David Eby was standing there pretty much tells you you're it's going to be frozen. Car insurance rates are frozen for two years. Why even have a utility commission at that point? Uh, but yeah, this is also noteworthy in that uh, it's only been a couple weeks since ICBC announced that uh, they're expecting a two hundred and ninety-eight million dollar loss this year. So, bit of a rough time financially for them to be freezing rates. Yeah. Initially, ICBC was looking at a loss of $625 million this year in their initial budget. So things are on the upswing. And staff at ICBC, the president, Nicholas Jimenez, said they can afford it. The core business is doing well. Um, but it does beggar the question of just like, you know, who's who's really paying for that deficit then? And the obvious answer is taxpayers in the entire province. Yeah, I mean, well, I, uh, yeah, yeah. For all we know, in a a couple of years' time, a uh, a new BC United Attorney General will be talking about how they have to resolve the dumpster fire of ICBC, and, and that's what really gets me here on this is that for years, uh, ICBC was a financial basket case. It is still not profitable, given the fact that it's going to be losing more than a quarter of a billion dollars this year after many years of losses and now the government is mucking around with it for quick political points 
this is everything David Eby hated as an opposition member, and it's disappointing to see it happen now. Um, and I think is going to be one of the things people will point to as a sign that the government has moved away from just trying to be the fairly competent managers of things to the we're going to be mucking around with all the the apparatuses of government for quick political wins phase that governments tend to get into. So I think the hypocrisy point comparing, you know, EB the opposition MLA versus EB the premier is valid. I I think it remains to be seen what state ICBC is in. I don't think a public auto insurer exists to make money, right? I if they it's also posting don't exist to lose money right? either. No, and so it's a tough balance and it you know, we don't have the year-end financials fully out. We have a good projection and it's probably going to be close to that. I think ICBC's staff are claiming that that loss is in large part due to the fluctuations in the global fiscal market. Like we both have some amount of investments and they're not doing good. We're not looking at them because we don't have to. But ICBC looks at them and goes, we're actually losing a lot of money, though our core, you know, aims are actually doing well. Uh, One of the critiques Kevin Falk and the BC Liberal brings out is that payouts to uh, claimants are significantly down, which is in some ways a bad thing, but is also like, the point of the reforms they brought in is they don't want those payouts going to lawyers. They want them going to get people better. Um, and it's still too early to say if that's working. So there could be a situation where, you know what, this is a justifiable freeze, or it was going to be a very small one. They mentioned it to, you know, cabinet and EB said, all right, we're going to, instead of just saying a like half a percent increase, we're just going to freeze it. We'll eat it a little, uh, that lets us have like seven years of straight no increases. And it could, you know, the dumpster fire might be out and or there might be like a little smolder. Well, that's I, I unrelated. wouldn't say a quarter of a billion dollars is a small smolder. It is if it's uh, investment related. Like I haven't looked closely at where that $300 million loss is. I agree it's not good. But should they cover investment losses with increase in rates? It really depends on the... The financial situation. Yeah. But like th- those investments are there to kind of smooth things out between years to year, have a fiscal re- reserve as well as uh, yeah, the, the gains from the investments also do mean you don't have to uh, have rates as high because um, you have this additional revenue source. So it's it's hard to say without really like going through the books in great detail. But it's not a great look to be doing this. I mean, for people who don't want to pay more on auto insurance as everything else is going up, it's at least going to be moderately populous, popular there. Yeah, it's... It won't hurt. Yeah, it's, it's not exactly the most uh, progressive of things that uh, the government should be doing. Uh, if it's going to be cutting people a break on some stuff, as opposed to, you know, sending out targeted checks out of the... Uh, $5 billion surplus or something because lower income people disproportionately own fewer cars and the cars that they do own are probably worth less. So their uh, insurance rates are probably lower on that front. So yeah, save on your insurance rates the next couple of years, but keep an eye on ICBC to see 
how well that agency is doing. Still rocky times there. Well, insurance rates aren't the only thing that's getting frozen, as it was just announced that uh, MLA pay for the Nets fiscal year, the the 2023 to 2024 fiscal year, is going to be frozen as the government announced that uh, they will not be supporting the previously planned increase of 6 to 10%, an increase that was set to be received as an inflationary raise. So, in real terms, this is a pay cut for MLAs. Yeah, this this story got reported weird. And I'm like, I get why it got reported the way it did. Like, as you say, there was a fixed guaranteed increase for MLAs. I think you and I both generally agree that costs and tax, any, any expenditure or even revenue that has a dollar amount should probably be fixed to inflation just to keep up for simplicity sake and just like keeping dollars worth something. And so MLA pay was tied to inflation, which is great for them. It'd be great if all the public sector workers also had that. And you know, we'll come back to that, I think, because that's where the outrage is. And so the six to 10 increase, I think is around where everyone's like predicting what inflation for 2022 will be. Now that doesn't look great to give yourself a 6% or a 10% raise. Well, many of the public sector workers accepted contracts that were less than that this year. And so, and the BC Liberals especially were hammering on this saying, you know, it's tone deaf, it'll, there's surging cost of living, we need to make sure that the people who need it most are getting the money. And to be fair, MLA's base pay is $115,000. They're not impoverished. Not that either of us think they should be paid significantly less like we deserve to pay our politicians properly in fact in general i think politicians are probably undercompensated like a you know one hundred fifteen thousand dollars a year is well above the median and average income in the province so for an individual so they're not doing bad they're not super wealthy but you know the they can afford to not have a raise this year and i think the government properly recognized that you know taking that full amount would be uh easy hay for the opposition. Yeah, although I, I think they could have probably defended it as this is the built-in um, indexed pay thing we have and we're just going to keep it. it. It's December, like nobody is really paying that much attention to politics. They probably could have just let it slide and it wouldn't have really been a thing in January. It's the same kind of story as the ICBC one, right? Where you have a system like the BC Utilities Commission that will review a proposed increase in light of various non-political factors, but then you still have politicians involved who have to decide the politics and the uh, optics of it. And in both of these cases, it seems like the optics won. Yeah, Not that I think the province is any worse off for our politicians being paid 115000 or hundred and I don't know, twenty or whatever next year but i, I think it's just, less the the one year difference than kind of the cumulative effect because it's hard to get people to agree to run for anything in this country and and there's a bunch of factors like the just yeah j just all the hassle the getting your name draped through the mud on social media daily um like the the lawn hours the times you have to spend away from your home and everything like all, all in all being a politician has a lot of downsides to it, and it's one of those things where 
it, it's great that there's still some people who want to do it, but there are a lot of really talented people out there who it would probably be good if they consider a role in politics. And they're probably in a case where the market value of their skills and experience is probably more than 115,000. And in a case where not only do you have to deal with all the hassles, but also you take a pay cut to do so makes it tougher to to bring the the talented people and leaders into the the realm of running the province so yeah like no mla is going to starve next year because they didn't get their pay raise but it's one of those things that like if you don't pay the politicians well it's going to slowly chip away at things yeah and like you say it's in real terms a pay cut and they could do that once but over time it will affect the ability of MLAs to afford homes and yeah, 115 like doesn't living. buy you that much in some parts of the province, Victoria included. Yeah. So, you know, do it this one year when inflation is so front of mind, but let's see politicians pay, give themselves, or not even give themselves, but just accept the structure a system increase. where they get, get uh, and then, reasonably inflation adjusted. Inflation adjustments in their stuff. And then do the same for all the workers. Because obviously our nurses and our teachers should also be earning what they're worth and continue earning what they're worth. So the politicians aren't the only ones frustrated, though. Uh, many British Columbians are, it turns out, or at least those who answered a survey a couple weeks ago, buried on a Friday afternoon. It turns out you can bury a story still on a Friday afternoon when you do it right. Uh, the BC government finally released the results of its operational management review. I think we talked about this when it was launched because we were both a little frustrated and disappointed by the scope uh, in terms of reference of this review. It wasn't a full like inquiry or look. It was just a consideration of operationally how how good was the province at doing responses to COVID. So who talked to who was the communication clear and that stuff. Still valuable questions, but not a deep look at the overall effectiveness. Or and really the areas like where people thought things had fallen down. Like there was a lot of things people had problems with about how the pandemic was handled. Some more justified than others, but I don't think once in 2020 or 2021, I heard someone say, you know what, it really seems like there aren't good internal lines of communication within the BC government on this. That's what's got me really concerned about this pandemic. Nevertheless, we got our report from the three, uh, I believe they're all former bureaucrats uh, who completed this review over the last few months. Uh, it was given to the government in September and on December 2nd. The media were given a copy of this 144-page report, and like under an hour later, they got to ask questions of Minister Mike Farnworth about it. Uh, he didn't think it was too short notice, as he, quote, said, the day was booked some time ago, which is I mean, they did, very vague. Sure, but like they didn't tell anyone else that. <laughs> but that kind of doesn't count. Or give anyone the copy of the report. Yeah. The executive summary of the report... Most journalists uh, go straight to that, and right there you'll find out that our response was, quote, strong, showing resilience, balance, and nimbleness that should give British Columbians confidence in its ability to respond to future province-wide emergencies. 
And some of the initial tweets and headlines I saw flagged that as like, oh, here's a pat on the back report. Uh, others skimmed it quickly and went, oh, there's like some surveys in here where people are mad. And I think that was the first thing people really drew out. Yeah. So there's a couple different spots where the uh, survey said some pretty unflattering things were a couple of the questions had kind of 75% plus negative responses, which is rare to see on a survey. Yeah. So to be clear, the they did kind of an online submission survey, as far as I understand it. They got 15,000 responses, which is pretty good for a government survey. Uh, but it's it's not a representative survey necessarily. It's not like a public opinion poll. It's just who shows up. And that's why I think the government is eager to downplay this because it seems like it got swarmed by uh, the anti-COVID crowd a lot. That said, and also probably there's still some valuable info in there. Not just the anti-COVID crowd, but also probably the COVID hawks or the other ones yeah, that... everyone who is mad. Yes. Yeah. If you were just kind of Eh, maybe it could be a little better. Chances are you didn't spend your time tracking down this government survey on, and answering it, which is why we got cases where, according to the 15,000 people that answered it, 74% of them disagreed with the statement, overall, the BC government managed the pandemic well. Uh, another 60% said information was often unclear or difficult to understand. Under 20% trusted the information shared by the government. Not not a resounding endorsement there. I think what's notable is I saw in the Capital Daily coverage, they flagged that there was some breakdown by demographic information that was collected, and thir only 13% of Indigenous respondents said that they trusted the government's response or information that was provided, which is disheartening. I don't know if the same motivated answering and biases were true of all subpopulations that answered. But I think they also heard that in some of the formal responses they got from organizations, that there was a big distrust among Indigenous respondents and organizations, and a lot of Indigenous peoples didn't know who to talk to within the province, which is not a good sign. No, it wasn't. And there were also concerns about uh, you know, access to the data, how clear that the province was being with all of this. So yeah, just still seems like there's a lot they could have done better on this. The report to the end gets into findings and and not so much recommendations as conclusions that give broad advice. So it's not like government needs to do X, Y, and Z and this, that, and the other, but it's more just people were mad about this. Maybe if you talked a little clearer, unlike what I'm doing right now, that would help people. Uh, some of them are super, super dumb. Like the government should rebuild trust. Rebuilding trust would be great. Having better preparation and planning would be great. Uh, mitigating supply chain disruptions. Kind of obvious stuff. Uh, some of the decision-making and communication stuff is really interesting. That stuff you mentioned around uh, transparency and communication, one of the quotes that the Capital Daily pulled out that I found in there as well is, government does a good job of communicating the what of decisions, but from what we heard across the board, its exclamation of, explanation of why decisions are made is lacking. For example, the lack of explanation of changes in how testing was used at different points during the pandemic response. This is disturbing. Uh, it flags that the government liked to talk about uh, following the science but then would refuse to actually give the scientific studies it's relying upon, which is something I've noticed and 
is kind of antithetical to how science works. Yeah, and the, throughout the pandemic, there was not great uh, communication also about when they did change uh, policies or something, why that was. Like, the thing that really sticks in my mind was uh, Dr. Brian Henry had written an op-ed about why it was just a terrible idea to bring in a mask mandate two weeks before they uh, a mask mandate was brought in. And it was never really addressed what the the change in view on that was that led to that no it was not uh we also never really saw a formal pivot or acknowledgement of the consensus that developed that in many cases covid is airborne or transmitted through aerosols there was still a large emphasis on hand washing and you know lysoling all your surfaces versus masking and upgrading hvac systems one thing that this really pulled out that is just giving me like flashbacks to the early part of the pandemic was the improved public health order finding. Uh, it noted concerns around how new or changed public health orders were frequently announced, but a written order was not made available for several days and sometimes weeks. Like this is going to give journalists listening a little bit of uh, PTSD, I feel like, or I don't mean to belittle anyone who actually suffers, but there was a lot of frustration. I remember uh, it notes that in many cases, the written orders were different from the announcement that was always fun when journalists were like, wait, what is the law? We don't know. Uh, it was also not always clear whether the announcement at the press conference constituted a legally binding verbal order or a notice of a pending written order. Uh, mostly it was actually the latter. So all that stuff Bonnie Henry said at the press conferences was often not the force of law, which it could have been, but it was just like Guidelines. A, a warning. <laughs> it was telling you what might happen. And then finally, many orders were amended multiple times, but to understand what had changed, one had to manually identify how the wording of the new order had changed from the previous order and legally interpret the effect of the new order. Yeah, there were people on Twitter and because they removed the old orders from the website, people had to have their cached versions or the ones they saved and like go text searching to figure out what words changed and then figure out what that implied. Um, this notes the lack of written explanatory materials clarity about when the change would take effect all of this was not great so they you know they conclude the office of the provincial health officer should review its order rollout practices and seek additional public policy and legal resources if needed which seems like an understatement of a lesson there yeah. uh, it also flags the need to be prepared to enforce public health orders uh, and there were concerns around that which was uh, also something the government was at various times not super keen on there was a lot and, of stuff where it was more, yeah, we'll put this out, but we're not actually going to take any efforts to enforce anything at all. And that works initially, right? That works the first couple of times when you have high public trust because you're just basically relying on goodwill. But as that goodwill fell apart because you kept changing your orders and not explaining why or how, people got confused and frustrated Well, not, not only that and then also realized it's not being enforced yeah and once people see something not being enforced that also destroys the public trust in it uh, there was also frustrations around modeling lacking transparency people flagged that other jurisdictions had other more robust regimes there the ontario science table was flagged as something that bc should look at as doing and i no one we've criticized ontario's uh, response to COVID and Doug Ford's response, 
but I think a lot of that was because he didn't listen to his science table. Like he had a team of experts that were speaking publicly and were able to speak publicly. They just didn't rely on them enough or didn't go back to them enough. So I don't know. It's hard to read this like list of conclusions and then also find those, yeah, that summary that's like, you know, overall it was pretty great. And, you know, trust our, our rating went down from 80% at the start to 60% later on, but you know, that's still a majority liked us. And I feel like when 40% of the province deeply doesn't trust you, that that is also a problem for an emergency I, management. I don't have that poll in front of me, so I don't know how many are uh, muddled in the unsure category to the government's benefit. Um, but yeah, there is some good meat in here, and it's frustrating and incredibly disappointing to see the government try to bury this and then also be very unclear on what follow-up actions if any they're taking like i know there is a larger review going on for emergency management bc and the overriding legislation for that but it's unclear how much this is going to affect that uh, and as we mentioned this review wasn't even as robust as we probably deserve but the health minister got to keep his job so <laughs> let's keep going with that Moving on to quick takes and looking to the federal government, news just this afternoon has broken that David Lametti and Carolyn Bennett are going to ask and work with Parliament to introduce an amendment to Canada's assisted dying legislation in the spring. It sounds like that will probably get pretty widespread support from all the parties to delay the implementation of the expansion of medical assistance in dying to those whose sole underlying condition is mental illness. In other words, in March, the MAID regime was set to expand to allow people whose only uh, condition is a mental illness to access MAID. Uh, that will be delayed pen to allow, I guess, for further consultation. Yeah, more, more consultation, more study, more consideration of it. Um, because, yeah, they'd originally basically structured the the previous bill to allow it, but not for the first two years. And the thinking was they would take that time and figure out the details. And they are still not there because there's some pretty thorny issues that are still being uh, raised around that. And also, like, the previous expansion hasn't gone probably as smoothly as... Uh, is ideal with a lot of questions being raised over uh, who who exactly has been taken. Uh, sorry, cut that. Uh, with questions being raised over uh, cases of uh, mental assistance dying being granted to people who cite, say, poverty as an underlying uh, condition uh, that led to their decision and whatnot. And all in all, the government is probably making the right it's making the right call here to delay it but also it was probably like a bad way to structure the legislation to set up this deadline before actually making sure they had everything they needed to do that and had seriously thought through the actual expansion i think the deadline made sense at the time as a way to effectively stave off further constitutional litigation like the reason bill c14 came in we need to remember is that 
there was a case in Quebec that found that the previous medical assistance and dying regime, which was brought in because of a Supreme Court ruling, uh, wasn't expansive enough. And so at least saying we are listening to people because there are people with mental illnesses who don't want to continue suffering. And there are a lot of people concerned that, uh, you know, this expansion will be too much. And so, you know, I can understand why they did it the way they did. And there have been studies. It's not like they've sat on their hands. Uh, the problem is the studies don't give you a clear cut answer because there's a lot of value questions in here that go beyond simple science. Yeah. And there's also some serious, uh, doubts from a lot of experts on whether, um, there's reliable enough diagnostic criteria to actually be able to make a, a scientifically informed diagnosis about a, a mental illness being, uh, I think the term of art is irredeemable or uh, un- irremediable. irremediable. That's the one uh, on there. So with that pretty big kind of uncertainty and question mark on there, it, the pause does make sense. And even perhaps reconsidering the expansion in general to uh, include mental illness. Because I, I haven't read the Quebec decision fully, but I don't believe they singled out uh, mental illness as something that was required in expansion to include as part of that the, ruling. No, and they, that this wasn't was the in Quebec. Legislature interpret the legislative branch interpreting that or adding that on to their legislation more so than having their hand being forced by the courts on it. I think the way the legislature and Lametti's office has gone about this is looking at the Carter, the original Carter decision, which basically said anyone with a grievous and irremediable illness should be able to access this. And if we're going to start differentiating between mental and physical illnesses, we need a basis to do so that somehow, you know, because to, dis- you know, to distinguish between them is to discriminate, right? And discrimination based on illness and disability is prohibited by the charter. So that's the quandary they're sitting in. Now, there are reasonable exemptions, and they can make an argument if they pass it and fight it all the way again. It's a messy issue. And so what I think is most valuable about an extension is around, I think it's June, we get the annual report that is required within our made legislation that is the most statistically robust set of data on who has been accessing it. We have a few of those annual reports so far, uh, but we don't have a full one that really accounts for the post-Bill C-14 changes. And, you know, that next report will give us that. That won't tell us much about mental health, but that will tell us a lot about the uh, actual data around the current state of the law. I know there have been a lot of those um, anecdotal stories in the news, and they're troubling and terrifying, but it's hard to know what the you know the reality is beyond the sensational stories though of course one yeah but is in many cons- cases too many yeah one is too many and in this case like this is not just any other policy we're, we're talking about authorizing the ending of a life and that's something where prudence uh would suggest that one should be extremely cautious about expanding that um without very, very serious considerations of all the potential downsides to it. And we just don't seem to be there. And based on the reporting that has been done 
of the post uh, C14 made. Uh, it, it's quite possible we didn't do a good enough job then. And without first doing like a very serious assessment of that, it would be at the very least imprudent and uh, probably more accurately described as reckless to expand further without making sure that has all been thoroughly, thoroughly examined and there are no cracks in the existing system. I mean, we'll come back to this because it's going to come back to Parliament, it sounds like. But I mean, my final take before we can move on is just that the problem isn't with made or even made expansion. It's with a like unwillingness to expand the social safety nets to actually make sure people don't have to live in poverty and suffering to where this becomes their option. Like if we don't expand and made or we retract made, those people will still be suffering. And so we need to right, increase they, housing they benefits. Be we need the Canada they might be, but it you know we can Changing the policy or refusing to change the policy around made isn't going to suddenly make someone make our society less ableist. Like we need do need to get the Canada disability benefit finally through. That's still struggling on the floor of the House, I believe, or possibly the Senate. Uh, and just otherwise make a society that cares about people both during their life and at end of life. Yeah, it's um, but yeah, the those are more tractable or yeah and those are factors that are definitely uh more tractable than reversing a bad made decision so once again i'd lean on the be fairly uh cautious on the expansion side but yeah we'll we'll no doubt be uh watching this as it goes forward and particularly because we don't even have a an intended date for when they're planning on extending this by so lots to watch out for there's no easy segue to go from talking about assisted dying to uh, luxurious trips around the world. So I'll just ham-fistedly move to the next story, which comes from the National Post and I guess a ATIP request from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, which followed some uh, back and forth in some of the Parliament Finance uh, Oversight Committees. Back in March of this year, there was an eight-day trip taken by Mary Simon, the Governor General, and 29 guests. It cost $1.15 million and included a nearly $100,000 catering bill that we now have broken down, cater courtesy of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Scott, what can you get for $100,000? Uh, not as much as you would guess, because $100,000, that ought to buy a lot of food. Uh, in this case... Uh, it bought meals for, uh, 29 people over an eight day trip, uh, which works out to well over a hundred dollars per meal. And some of the breakdowns on the specific, uh, at least a few of the, uh, items there are just like truly absurd. So they spent a thousand dollars for lemons and limes, uh, $110 on four liters of orange juice. So like, which is worse than the sixteen dollar Bevoda orange juice? Yeah, or sorry, uh, for apple juice, not. Uh, but yeah, so that's like thir or like twenty eight bucks. Oh, sorry, I'm comparing apples and oranges. Yes, here, <laughs> um, hundreds of dollars on ice. Uh, at one point, they made a they paid 
$247 for a special request of arugula and rice salad, which had another $329 concierge fee applied to the special request. So we're talking like a $500 plus salad that was purchased on this trip. Uh, Staff had told the MPs that meals were equivalent to Air Canada level food. Quote, we had eggs, we had omelets. National Post went through and they show that there was a receipt for an omelette, but there were other receipts that consisted of things like beef wellington, beef carpaccio, and quote, apple and cranberry stuffed pork tenderloin served with oven roasted cubed squash sauteed Brussels sprouts with a maple gravy. Now, in the staff's defense, that sounds like what Air Canada describes their food as <laughs> sometimes. They do have a tendency to oversell the, the food a bit on uh, on planes. And like... I I'm I'm fine with them being uh, provided food on the taxpayer's expense on taxpayer fun trips and even like something that's probably a little better than you would get on a typical in-flight meal. But what is here is just like absolutely ridiculous on. Well, and a spokesperson with the Royal Canadian Air Force who operated the flight say some of the costs were really driven up because of the airports they went to had specific catering company monopolies. So they didn't have as much flexibility or open market. Like they couldn't bring their own food on the plane easily without like planning in advance to have food delivered from somewhere in wherever they had a stopover. And I can see that we all know how bad air airports can be for monopolistic business practice practices, but there's just that level of ex you know, absurdity in this, which just like lends itself to the anti-government, like they're all just wasteful bureaucrats kind of thing. And the governor general's office, for fuck's sakes, has not had a good few years on spending controls. Not at all. And, and like speed of spending control, like that's really where this thing falls down. Is um like the the National Post story mentions that they're going to end garnishes with drinks as a response to this, and that's just a dumb way to respond to. Like, some drinks get served with garnish. That's not the problem. Like, yeah, sure, you can have a lime slice with your drink. The problem is paying $1,000 for the limes, not the lime itself. And really, this is just a case of failing even the most basic purchasing cost controls on this um, and just paying out outrageous amounts for... Uh, well, and also the... And like if bureaucrats were unwilling to give a full breakdown, they said they couldn't give a breakdown of the catering costs, and then the CTF gets it from an ATIP. Yeah, in fact, the so, CTF, uh, they sent their ATIP copy to the National Post the same day that the uh, staff said they couldn't provide details. So like that information had already been collected and distributed out. So... There is also a like breakdown there beyond just bureaucrats losing a couple files. Like that information had already been collected and distributed. So which is particularly concerning if they're then telling Parliament, oh, we don't have this information when they clearly do. In the Liberals defense, uh they were as mad as everyone, according to the story. Anthony Housefather was yelling at them, uh a block MP was also yelling at them like None of the politicians were happy here. This was clearly like a, a part of the civil service that has not been 
thinking about, and I'm not, and like, I, I hate when the bureaucracy gets in an austerity mindset, right? That's not what we're really mad about here. It's just like a complete lack. Like there's a good middle ground where you're like, all right, we don't need to be cheap, but we shouldn't like, we need, we still need to watch what the bill is at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Cause yeah, nobody should be paying a thousand dollars for limes or 30 bucks per liter for apple juice. Like just that, that is where the real problem is here. And yeah, going full austerity in response is just a dumb way to do it compared to, yeah, let's just buy stuff at their typical market value. You know what? If I break it down, I think they actually got a better deal on the apple juice than Bev Oda got on her orange juice, depending how big her glass size was. Perhaps. But like they, they but probably just. bought, like those were probably not. Uh, and then with inflation. Yeah. It, well, I'm just thinking like those four liters probably didn't show up as like gl glasses of poor juice. They probably showed up as like four t one liter Tetra Pats that retail for about three, three to four dollars each. But yeah, not a not a good day for the governor general's office. Um, should we close off by talking about the petition that everyone needs to go sign on the parliament's Oh, I'm not sure everyone needs to go system. sign it because it is a... Uh, it's a it's wild. It's a wild petition more than a good petition. So I don't know how much we've talked about this in the past, but a number of years ago, actually initiated by former Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, Par Parliament of Canada has an e-petition system where if you get five people together, you can get, and then you get an MP to authorize it, you can get an e-petition put on the government website. If that petition gets 500 signatures within a certain time period, I think it's usually about a month. Uh, there's th uh, so there's three different time periods. They can either be up for 30, 60, or 90 days. The It's not clear how they get assigned. Yeah. This one's only up for 30 days, though. Um, it Then, if it gets its 500 signatures, the government has to give a response. That response can be, go fuck yourselves. Uh, I think it's usually written a little bit nicer than that. But Although, in this case, if the, the government response is just, lol, no... That would probably be about right. So, Mr. John Barassa of Abbotsford, British Columbia, got his MP, Ed Fast, Conservative of Abbotsford, Representative of Abbotsford, to put the following petition up. Uh, whereas, and this is to the Prime Minister himself, provincial governments create divisions and regionalism, encourage fringe groups and extremism, and create further distrust of the political system. We, the undersigned citizens and residents of Canada, call upon the Prime Minister to hold a national referendum on removing the provincial level government, leaving only two levels, federal and municipal government. <laughs> wow. That, that is not how any of this works at all. Uh, beyond the fact that like referendums aren't generally legally binding and certainly not a accepted method of amending the Constitution, which... Let's be clear, that is what you ad absolutely have to do to even just remove a single province, let alone all of them. And yeah, this would probably require a unanimous consent of the provinces to abolish themselves. Yeah, which is never going to happen. Um, also, like the idea that provinces create divisions is nutty, to say the least. So, on the most trivial level, they are regional and they create regionalism by definition. But like, it's more that there's regionalism and they give that regionalism some form than that they create the regionalism. Like, well, the, the and people... then the divisions you get are between the Quebec government and the 
the Alberta government, for example. And if those didn't exist, we could just be like Britain, notably uh, non-provincial system that is working great. Well, they're like quad. I mean, their devolution experiment is creating quasi province. It, it's a little messy there. <laughs> to say the least, but yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily look at Britain as a um, great model of constitutional reform of late. Yeah, and I know people are going to get in our replies and point to New Zealand and Japan, and those are functional countries without. Although, yeah, provinces. Well, New Zealand but they're much smaller geographically. Yeah, New Zealand is tiny geographically and has the same number of people as BC. Like, I think they have a population of about five million, give or take. It's you, you can do a unitary state on a couple small islands, or even a couple big islands, uh, in a way that a continent-spanning country just doesn't do. But there is a reason that pretty much every geographically large country has some sort of federal structure to it. Well, so far, 30 people, this is up from the nine when I first saw this, I think it was only yesterday, uh, have signed the petition. I don't think that's a growth rate that's quite enough to get them to 500. Um, I I would be curious to see what Justin Trudeau's office came up with as a response for this. Uh, it would probably just be like, our, you know, provinces are a valuable part of the Constitution and a cherished partner in confederation with the federal government, some bullshit like that. But man, Ed Fast, you did not have to authorize this as far as I can tell. But uh, credit to you for letting this get up there. It's not as harmful as, you know, sponsoring a 9-11 truther petition, which has been done. Elizabeth May, but uh, was this, the is, this is just that fun. One. That was the reference. Uh, so yeah, this one's just, this is just fun. It, it is a weird like one it. for a conservative to sponsor, considering that the conservatives tend to be the party of provincial autonomy more than, than the others. Maybe Ed Fast is just the man of the people, and he's happy to sponsor I, any petition. I also find it funny that, that the plurality of signatures are from Alberta. Eleven of the uh, thirty uh, come from the. It's way too small to draw any distinction. Uh, yeah, I, I know, but also yet. like Al Alberta is like second to Quebec in terms of a very like strong regional identity that has a, a certain oh. amount of uh, desire to at least strengthening its independence from Ottawa. Rome. I don't know. If you haven't paid attention, a lot of Albertans are not very happy to be a province right now or to be in that province or with that provincial government. Yeah, but so I think maybe very few of them would, would look at that as this like, okay, get rid of Alberta as the solution to it. I, I could find 10 people in Alberta who believe that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, but yeah, it, it's... Link is in the show notes if you want to go it, sign. It is one of the funnier petitions and more absurd ones that we've come across of late with that we'll leave it for 2022 happy new year and celebrate whatever holidays you do hope you get some time off and i guess we'll see you in the new yes, year everyone in the new year and that has been playtoast find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca support the show and get access to our slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast our intro music credit is beautiful british columbia by Sir Plotnikov. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>